So yesterday I jumped in my car uh, in the afternoon and from my home in San Antonio drove directly to Uvalde. And as soon as I got here to the crime scene in the neighborhood where this all happened, the first person I met was nine-year-old Jalisa Ibarra and her grandmother, Marcela Cabrales, who's a local pastor. That's our Elise Hernandez. She's a Post reporter based in Texas. And she spoke to us from her car in Uvalde, near the site of Tuesday's shooting at an elementary school. I asked her grandmother if I could, you know, talk to her about what had happened. She had just gotten home uh, maybe an hour or so earlier from everything that had taken place. And Angelisa started sort of rapidly describing what she understood about what had happened earlier in the day. Start again if you would. It started in the fourth grade building and they started shooting people. While I was in lunch, we started seeing police and they started doing a lockdown. So then they started... In her sort of, you know, she's a child, so in sort of a squeaky voice, she, she tried to lay out for me a timeline of where she was, which was in the lunchroom uh, when the shooting started, what her teachers in the lunchroom told her to do, which was to go up on the stage in the lunchroom and hide behind a curtain. And what she understood about where her cousin, who also goes to the same school, was at the same time. And did you hear the shots? No, but my cousin did. He was in the restroom, and then he said that he started hearing the shots. So he had to go with his classroom, and he he made it to his classroom without the people seeing him. It was kind of difficult for Jalisa to put everything together. There were the pieces of the story that she herself had experienced in that lunchroom and evacuating from the building. And then there were the things that the adults around her that were were saying. You know, she described this man with a gun who had jumped the fence at her school, uh, which comports with the, the police narrative. And, you know, began opening fire. And, and she described that, you know, police arriving. She described her cousin's experience who was, you know, stuck in a bathroom when all of this began. And she sort of reflected on, you know, the, the fear that, that, that she was feeling at that moment. Julissa, how old are you? I'm nine. Nine? Did you ever imagine that anything like this would happen at your school? Well, yes, that's why I'm scared to go in the restrooms because I'm scared that someone's going to pop up. So I don't like to go to the restrooms at my school. I stay, I stay in my classroom. And what was your reaction to hearing her story? I cried. Here was this child who you know, had gone to school or it was a day of celebration. There was an awards assembly that had happened at around nine o'clock at the school where kids were getting certificates for things like perfect attendance and AB honor roll and any number of things. And so parents and grandparents had been there just a few hours before. And, you know, they're just a few days from summer vacation. And to hear sort of Jalisa have struggled to put together you know, what had happened and the harm that had been visited upon her and her classmates was really difficult. She was jittery. She kept bouncing around, you know, as we were talking. And 
and I just remember, you know, I kept looking at her grandmother to see, you know, how how things were going. And I think, you know, to some degree, both of them were still struggling to to wrap their heads about around what was happening. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, May 25th. For someone to gun down little kids, it is intolerable and it is unacceptable for us to have in the state anybody who would kill little kids in our schools. As it stands now, 19 children and two teachers are confirmed dead in this elementary school shooting in Uvalde. 17 more are injured, but according to what we heard this afternoon from Texas Governor Greg Abbott, none of those injuries are life-threatening. To say the least, Uvalde has been shaken to its core. Families are broken apart. Hearts are forever shattered. On today's show, we're going to hear more from Aralise, who has been talking to members of this community about how they're wrapping their minds around this tragedy. Then, later in the show, we turn to our colleague John Woodrow Cox, who has spent years reporting on school shootings and their effects on children. And we talk about why so little has changed since Sandy Hook nearly 10 years ago. And it will happen again. You know, yesterday is not the end of it. It's not. We will have these same conversations weeks or months or years from now, inevitably, unless there is dramatic effort to change this. So as of what we're hearing today on Wednesday, what more do we know about what happened at this elementary school um, and, and the circumstances around the shooting? There's still a lot that we don't know about this specific timeline questions like, you know, how did he get in the school? This was a school that, you know, had implemented a lot of the security measures of this era of mass school shootings um, that, you know, the doors lock from the inside. People can't just, you know, waltz onto campus without foreknowledge. And so those are the questions that we still have and that investigators are pouring over right now. There's a lot of evidence. This is a big crime scene. It's not just one, it's two. Stepping back a second, we we think this all started at the home of the shooter's grandmother, where he had been staying in recent days um, or weeks Apparently, there was some kind of altercation at grandmother's home, which is just a few blocks away from the school, and she was shot several times. At that point, what investigators describe is he jumped into this truck, this pickup truck, and careened towards the school with a bag of of rifles. He then crashed into the south gate, of the school, and he emerged from the vehicle and started shooting. Uh, This is where the details are not super clear. At some point, the shooter jumps over the fence of the school and heads towards this wing, which is known as the fourth grade wing. It's a newer part of the school. It's through sort of the south side of, of that building and somehow got in. There was recess going on. There were PE classes that were going on. So it could have been that in the melee of teachers trying to get kids inside, that somehow he gained entry into the building, in which case officers belonging to the school district did shoot 
at him and tried to stop him. He barricaded himself inside one classroom where he proceeded to shoot children and teachers. We don't know the time, how long he was in there yet. Uh, that, again, that's something we, that investigators have not shared with us publicly. But at some point, a tactical team of law enforcement, and it sounds like to have been a mix of U.S. Border Patrol and, and other local law enforcement, uh, went in and, and stopped the gunman, shooting him dead. So what, what more do we know about some of these victims? Uh, we're, we're pulling that together. We, do, we don't have names except for what has been related to us by neighbors and members of the community. Uh, among the 17 injured, of course, are, are adults and children as well, uh, as well as a 66-year-old grandmother of the shooter who's in critical condition in San Antonio at a San Antonio hospital. I talked to one neighbor here in the in near the school who mentioned that you know this cuts at the heart of this particular community because it's a community that wraps itself around the schools this week was supposed to be a week of all kinds of celebrations that take place um, for example the graduating class of seniors, there's this tradition here that they sort of walk through elementary school and the middle school. I think you saw some videos on social media of them high-fiving these same students who were victimized a day later. We have, uh, you know, a couple teachers being called heroes for, you know, shielding, trying to save their children, trying to save, shield them from the gunfire. Their relatives have gone on to social media describing them, you know, as, as wonderful people, as dedicated teachers. Here they celebrate El Dia del Niño or Children's Day, which is widely celebrated in the spring in Latin America, is also celebrated here. There would have been, you know, festivals and 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 kids jumping on, you know, those moon bounces, but none of that is going to happen. Now this community is going to be planning funerals for kids kids that they had big dreams for. I'd love to hear just a little bit more about some of your conversations um, with people in Uvalde and, and some of the things that they said that you're reflecting on. Yeah, I spent some time talking to Jalisa's grandmother, who, uh, as I mentioned before, is a, a pastor here at a local congregation her daughter works in the school and she got a call around 11.36 from her daughter, you know, that there was shooting in the school, that it had gone on lockdown and that she was desperately trying to find the family's children. She called me crying, saying that they were in lockdown. They didn't know anything other than they heard what sounded like fireworks and gunshots just going off. She told me she had her in the cafeteria. She says she's okay, but I can't find my son. That's her cousin. She's, she said he's out in the PE area in the recess. And so she was a little frantic, and I told her to calm down. And, you know, she'd be okay, and that's when I got a call if I could go assist with some of the students that they had evacuated and took it into the funeral. Marcella Cabrales, the, the pastor, she was actually got a call a couple minutes later to report to see if she could go to a funeral home where law enforcement had sent children who had been evacuated to the school to this funeral home across the street. And one of the funeral workers called uh, Cabrales and asked to see if she could minister to some of the children. And she described for me, 
you know, what that experience was like, what she saw when she walked into that room full of crying children and adults. So my initial reaction as I walk in is I begin to kind of raise my voice and silence everybody and I tell the children we're going to pray. I know this is scary. It's okay to cry. I said, but let's stay calm and let's say a prayer. And then they're all very attentive as I begin praying. They began repeating the prayer with me. The um, the eighteen year old shooter in this case. Um, what are the outstanding questions that law enforcement is trying to answer about him or about his his reasons for targeting the school? Yes, law enforcement is trying to figure out what what motivated uh, this young man to carry out this this monstrous act. They're talking to his family members. They're trying to find his friends of which we understand that there were few, trying to piece together what his last several weeks, I trying to figure out if he was still in school, if, you know, what the situation was for him in, in terms of socially, like how he engaged with other students, if there was some bullying going on, things like that. Anything that would tr- get us closer to understanding where he was emotionally and mentally when he decided to carry this out. And and what about his access to the weapons that he used in this? What do we know about where they came from, whether they were attained legally, um, and what questions there are around that? Law enforcement told the Washington Post that he had actually purchased both guns legally on his 18th birthday, which is completely legal in Texas, where we have permitless carry and 18-year-olds can possess these sort of high-powered weapons. In the aftermath of, of other shootings that we've had in this country, Texas has gone the other way in terms of gun control, uh, has moved towards making guns more accessible to citizens. And even in the sort of aftermath and the commentary that took place, including Attorney General Ken Paxson, sort of inferring that the solution to these types of situations is to arm teachers, to have them packing, you know, inside school buildings. I'd like to note that in this situation, uh, the Uvalde, you know, consolidated school district, which includes some other rural counties, they actually have their own police force and they, they engaged the shooter in this particular incident. This is an ongoing investigation and ongoing investigations often reveal new information as those investigations progress. At Wednesday's press conference, Governor Abbott shared more details of what law enforcement know about the shooting. He said there had been no prior warning of the shooter's intentions until that day, when he posted a series of disturbing messages on Facebook. The first post was to the point of, he said, I'm going to shoot my grandmother. The second post was, I shot my grandmother. The third post, maybe less than 15 minutes before arriving at the school, was, I'm going to shoot an elementary school. You just heard Arlise Hernandez, a reporter for The Post based in Texas. After the break, I talk with our colleague John Woodrow Cox about the connection between school shootings and the pandemic. We'll be right back. 
as of yesterday, more than 311,000 students have been exposed to gun violence since 1999. John Woodrow Cox is an enterprise reporter for The Post. For the last five years, he's almost exclusively covered school shootings. In 2018, after the massacre in Parkland, Florida, John helped develop this database at The Post. It tracks every school shooting in the United States since Columbine. Earlier this week, I was talking to a colleague of mine who also has covered a lot of this with me, and we were both just so eager to get to summer (laughs) because that's when you get a break because kids are not in school. And we didn't make it. You know, we didn't make it. I don't know if this is actually true, but at least to me, it has felt like we have seen fewer school shootings in recent years because of the pandemic, because so many kids have been staying home from school. And I've talked to friends of mine who are parents who say, you know, one of the tiny silver linings of all these kids staying home from school for so long is that at least for this period, I wasn't scared every day that something would happen to my kid at school like this. But You know, I I wonder, like, where are we now with school shootings and how does this shooting in Uvalde fit into the bigger picture? Yeah, I mean, the only thing in this country that curbed school shootings were children literally not being in schools. The minute that they returned in March of last year to in-person learning, school shootings exploded. Wow. There were more school shootings in 2021 than in any year since at least 1999. Wow. By far, it smashed the previous record. There were 42 acts of campus gun violence in K-12 through schools last year, and that trend has continued. We're on pace this year to eclipse that number. That's really surprising to me, this idea that in 2021, we saw more school shootings than we had in a very long time. I mean, why? What is going on? Yeah, you know, it's a really important question and one that we really can't answer yet. There's a lot of theories as to why, you know, the past 15 months have caused this spike. There's certainly been a huge increase in gun sales that came during the pandemic and and in these past year and a half or so. We know there's been soaring rates of overall violence. And the pandemic, you know, in the chaos of the past year have really isolated people. You know, the psychologists uh, that I've talked to have felt like the impact on kids and young people especially, that sense of isolation, that increase in depression, that increase in anger, the lack of support Mm. that maybe uh, was built into their lives before through things like athletics or even therapists at school or all of that. All of that's been disrupted. I feel like there's such a sad irony there of kids staying home from school and that allowing this reprieve in school shootings, and yet social distancing and isolating also contributing to more of these shootings when people were back to being in person and Mm -hmm. people struggling with mental health. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's devastating for these kids to be coming out of what was for many of them the darkest period of their lives a time when they were separated from their friends where maybe they had family members they were losing to COVID and then they returned to school, a thing that for millions of children was a moment to celebrate. And now here they are, right, dealing with historic rates of school shootings. I mean, it's what it's like to grow up in this country right now, I cannot imagine. 
And I know that has been a huge part of your reporting on this is the fact that these shootings, frankly, are not rare anymore and that a huge percentage of children in American schools have either experienced shootings, thought that they experienced shootings or or experienced um, false alarms of shootings that were traumatizing in their own way, that this is really a widespread and traumatizing experience for so many children. Yeah, and and I I think that's the thing that's so often overlooked. I mean, so much of my work over the past five years has been devoted to the children who are not physically harmed because that tends to be the only way that we think about victims of gun violence and of school shootings. Mm. I mean, all the discussion today, right, we're all fixated on the number, but that does not begin to capture the scope of the devastation, right? There were children who, who witnessed their classmates being killed in front of them. There were kids who were down the hall listening to it happen. There were siblings. And there are children in other schools, right? And then there's that whole population of kids who go through these lockdowns. Not just lockdown drills, but literally millions of children every year go through actual lockdowns where they hide in their classrooms and they think, I might die today. And we know they think that because they soil themselves, they weep, they write their parents' text messages goodbye, they write wills saying who they want their stuff to go to. I mean, these are all children who are victims of gun violence. John, you know, I think for so many of us who saw the news on Tuesday, it really felt like it echoed what happened in Sandy Hook in 2012. I don't know where you were in 2012. I was working at the Boston Globe. I remember getting Mm -hmm. sent from Boston to drive down to Connecticut in the aftermath of that shooting and listening to the radio and hearing the numbers tick up of how many children were confirmed dead and hearing the number get higher and higher and higher in a way that was just hard to fathom. And it felt like that's how everyone felt, right? That this was an unfathomable moment and that there was sort of a collective, almost stultifying shock about what had happened. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if that's how people feel anymore. Like, I, I, you know, I, I wonder how much this feels similar to Sandy Hook and how much the reaction to this has evolved in a way that there's this really bleak, fatalistic, you know, of course this happened because this always happens and it's going to keep happening because nobody does anything about it. How would you describe the way that our kind of collective thinking about shootings like this has changed over the last decade? Well, you know, there's nothing that we haven't seen, right? At this point, there, there, is, nothing, there is nothing new. Sandy Hook was new. Seeing 21st graders murdered in their school was something that this country had never endured But what happened yesterday was something that, you know, we have endured. We have seen this, children that young being methodically executed in their own schools. So I think you're right. You know, I talked last night to families from Newtown and families from Parkland. And, Mm. you know, there was a sense of shock in the way that sort of their body couldn't not go into shock. But there was no surprise. Mm. None you know, because they they had uh, lived this and they understood acutely that nothing had tangibly changed, that we'd done nothing as a country to stop it from happening again. And it will happen again. You know, yesterday is not the end of it. It's not. We will have these same conversations weeks or months or years from now, I- inevitably, unless 
there is dramatic effort to change this. You know, will we see anything actually change, though? I mean, I, I am skeptical. You saw even the cycle of responses last night were predictable. We pray fervently that in the midst of this nightmare of grief, our Heavenly Father will make manifest to those families His promise in Psalm 34. They're what we always see. There was, you know, the conservative lawmakers immediately saying that, well, we need to arm teachers. We know from past experience that the most effective tool for keeping kids safe uh, is armed law enforcement on the campus. And there is no evidence, none, that arming teachers, that putting more guns into schools will prevent these school shootings. It's just simply not backed by research, by evidence, by data. You know, we know that a great many school shootings happen at schools where there are armed police officers, and those armed police officers cannot stop these events from occurring. I think that when we listen to Republican politicians react to shootings like this, a lot of it feels to be in bad faith, right? That there is a sense of thoughts and prayers. I can't believe that this happened. I'm thinking about these families, but that they are people who have the power to take steps to address this and that they're not doing it. But I wonder if there is truth to their argument that this is like playing whack-a-mole in some cases, right? As an average person looking at these shootings, how often they happen, the different ways that they happen, the different motivations, whether it's white supremacist beliefs or whether it's mental health issues or whether it happens at a school or a grocery or with this type of gun or that kind of gun. And it just seems like there's so many different iterations of this that I do wonder whether, you know, there really is the solution that would stop this from happening. Well, this is unique to America. Among developed countries, we are the only one that experiences these levels of gun violence, that experiences this frequency of mass shootings that deals with perpetual shootings in schools. And what that tells me is that it doesn't have to be this way because it's not this way in all these other developed countries. Americans are not uniquely evil. There is no evidence that we are more evil than every other wealthy country on Earth. Our other levels of crime rates line up with other countries on, on a lot of, especially lots of violent crime rates that, that don't involve firearms. The difference between this country and every other developed country is the sheer number of guns in this country and our struggle to regulate them in a way that prevents things like yesterday from happening. So it, it is not true that it has to be this way in America because it's not this way in a lot of other countries that are in many other ways just like America. And I know that there's so much frustration with that general sense of political inaction on this, but I do think it's helpful to be specific in understanding exactly what has been considered and what is on the table right now. So I'm wondering if you can kind of go back to the aftermath of, of Sandy Hook and when there was this moment where it seemed like President Obama and Democrats in Congress were really willing to put their political weight behind trying to pass something substantive and what that was and, and why it ended up failing. So, you know, there were a few things that they pushed hard for in the aftermath of Sandy Hook, and one of the primary things was universal background checks. That is always the policy that comes up first, and that's in part because Americans 
overwhelmingly support it. The polls consistently show that 90% plus of Americans support universal background checks, Mm. and that includes a majority of gun owners, that they support universal background checks. That is a thing that, you know, the Senate won't even take a vote on. Mm -hmm. You know, what so much of this ultimately comes down to is the influence of the gun lobby. It is the influence of gun manufacturers who do have considerable sway over some number of senators, especially in conservative areas. You know, they don't want to be labeled as gun grabbers. They don't want to be labeled as anti-gun. These are things that have led conservative lawmakers to lose elections, uh, just being hit with that one label, right? So Mm. there has been historically, and I think there continues to be a real reluctance to speak up because of the political cost. And has that changed or shifted at all? I mean, I'm thinking even about Governor Greg Abbott in Texas, who is scheduled to talk to the NRA this week. Is there any sense that there is becoming more of a cost for politicians to align themselves so closely with the NRA, to accept donations from the NRA, to vote in lockstep with the measures that the NRA does or does not want to pass? What we have seen is that the NRA has opposition that never existed before. And that is the thing that Sandy Hook profoundly changed, is that there were a lot of groups that popped up, most notably Moms Demand Action, that said, you know, we're going to fight you on this. And they have, you know, the NRA used to give grades to politicians. that Mm, They would give, you know, A grades to politicians who voted with them, and they would give F grades to politicians who didn't. And the, you know, Moms Demanded and these other groups really weaponized that. And they've, if you go out there on the internet trying to find the grades that the NRA gives to lawmakers, it's harder to find. And that's, to me, there is some evidence there that it is not, nearly as helpful to a politician to be labeled as a you know an A student by the NRA as as it once was. Hmm. What I often say is that the tipping point in all this will come when politicians are more afraid of the influence and the fury of moms demand action in those groups than they are of the NRA. And that hasn't happened yet. Well, in some places it has, right? In some hmm. districts you've seen that tip, but in a lot of places It hasn't, and certainly not in enough places has it happened because we still don't have new legislation. But I I also think that a lot of people right now who believe that something should happen to prevent these kinds of shootings, that they understand that Republicans stand in opposition to, you know, gun control or gun reform measures. But at the same time, they see that President Biden is president, that Democrats control both chambers of Congress, and that they don't understand how there is not at least something more that Democrats can do at this moment, especially now in these sort of waning days before the midterms, that there's not more of a push to try to use this window of opportunity. Really what it comes down to is the filibuster, right? I mean, that's really what it it is. If Democratic lawmakers said, we absolutely have to pass gun legislation and we will do it regardless of the political cost, they could do it. They could say, you know, we're going to work around the filibuster. We just need our simple majority. Now, you know, that obviously depends on a handful of Democratic lawmakers in conservative areas agreeing to that. And as we know, that seems unlikely. Mm. There has been an unwillingness on behalf of a certain number of Democratic lawmakers 
to work around the filibuster, right? To say, we're going to ignore this just to push through this legislation. So there are seven or eight or nine Americans deciding gun laws for all of the other Americans, all of them. It is that simple. And they're all in the Senate. (laughs) And there's just enough to not get the vote to 60 to say that, you know, things are going to stay the same. And again, it comes down to, in those states, for those senators, when will they reach that tipping point? Is there anything that President Biden could do unilaterally on this in the form of an executive action? So that gets complicated. You know, there's there's a handful of things. Uh, you know, he's really tried to work hard on ghost guns. What are ghost guns? Ghost guns are guns that are not regulated by the ATF. They're most often people buy parts off the internet and then put together their own guns. So these are guns that, you know, don't have serial numbers and they've become increasingly a problem. And, and he has with his executive power, tried to address that. And he's also tried to do something that is often overlooked, but that is really important, and that's to appoint someone to head the ATF, which is the federal agency in this country that is tasked with dealing with gun violence. And it has not had a leader in a very long time. His first nominee didn't get the support. Hmm that he needed to head the agency. He's since nominated another. So, you know, that's something that is urgently needed because the ATF is understaffed, it's underfunded. It doesn't really do its primary purpose much of the time. It can't because it just doesn't have the support that it needs. And the other thing I would say too is we are right now limited to a handful of the same ideas. And it's because the CDC our government entities have not studied gun violence in earnest in decades. Only in the last couple of years has the funding returned to actually study the origins of gun violence and how to stop it. Really, that, that's surprising to me. And that's just a, a money thing that the CDC hasn't had the money in a long time to be able to devote resources to studying gun violence. It was purely political. In the 1990s, there was a congressman from the state of Arkansas named Jay Dickey, who at the prompting of the NRA stood up in front of the House and made an argument that the CDC should not study basically or promote gun control. And that had such a chilling effect because they passed something in the budget that year called the Dickey Amendment. It became known as the Dickey Amendment that prohibited the CDC from promoting gun control that had such a chilling effect that we went for more than two decades in this country without funding gun violence research. Two decades. And only until the last few years has there been any renewed funding for that. But it's still in the tens of millions. I mean, this is something that should be in the hundreds of millions when you consider how many people die. And what we could do is what we did with car safety, where if you drive down the highway, you'll see a little three-foot barrier in the median. That was the result of research. Somebody figured out, if we put a barrier between these lanes, it will save tens of thousands of lives. Hmm. We could approach gun violence the exact same way, the thing that showed us that seatbelts would save lives, right? There are all sorts of things around guns and gun violence that we just do not know because we've been unwilling to research it. And I'm, I'm encouraged, certainly, that in the last few years there has been renewed funding, but it's, it's not nearly enough. We're still working in the dark too often around these issues. John, is there anything about this that leaves you at all encouraged about the possibility for future action on this? Or, 
I don't know, is the landscape really as, as bleak and depressing and hopeless as I think it feels for many of us right now? I do have hope. I have hope largely because the children who are enduring this and have endured it for the last 20 years are very soon going to be in charge. They're going to be making decisions about whether they want to pass gun safety reform, whether they are willing to let their children live through what they lived through. And I I think the answer will be no. I don't think they will be willing to allow the status quo to continue. These were kids who had grown up with this. They had grown up with lockdowns. They had grown up with that looming threat of someone showing up to their school and killing them or their friends. So, you know, as those kids get older, I think that we will see significant shifts all over the country. It's going to take time. I don't foresee in the next year. I don't foresee in the next year that we'll see some sort of sweeping reform or any kind of meaningful change, at least at the federal level. I don't think that will happen. But I do think in our lifetimes, we will see that sort of significant change. John, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you for having me. John Woodrow Cox is an enterprise reporter for The Post. He's also the author of a book about the uniquely American tragedy of school shootings and the effects of gun violence on kids. It's called Children Under Fire, an American Crisis. It's a powerful book, and if you want to read an excerpt that was featured in The Post, we'll include a link to that in today's show notes and at postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We will have more on the Uvalde shooting on tomorrow's show, but in the meantime, check WashingtonPost.com for updates on the story. Today's episode was produced by Rennie Svernovsky, Ted Muldoon, and Andrea Salcedo, with help from Emma Talkoff. It was mixed by Ted and edited by Rena Flores. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.